Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. As we always do, first thing of a Monday, uh, we have a look back at some of the uh, big stories of the weekend, many of which are still uh, the big stories today. Our, our guest today to do that is law lecturer at NUI Galway and columnist for the journal, Larry Donnelly. Larry, good afternoon to you. Great to be with you, Sean. Uh, now, the, your, the first thing you wanted to talk about was uh, there have been, people would have seen some coverage of this, certainly protests in Dublin uh, about asylum seekers and there have been protests in, in Wicklow as well. Yeah, I mean, um, some scenes that, uh, you know, I, I suppose um, scary at one level, I think, in many respects. Uh, and, you know, this relates to, uh, it seems to be predominantly single men uh, being moved into both East Wall and uh, near to where I live uh, in Wicklow Town. Uh, I can't speak hugely to the situation in East Wall, though uh, I will say uh, we're already seeing signs that this has been hijacked. I mean, I heard reports that there are Irish Lives Matter signs being hung up. Uh, so there are certain elements, I suppose, who are already trying to use this to their own uh, advantage. But the situation in Wicklow Town is is an interesting one in the sense that uh, a number of years ago now, uh, the Grand Hotel, which was the only hotel in the town, uh, all of a sudden converted into a direct, direct provision center. And despite some protests at the time about what this would lead to, uh, the reality is people who have families and a mixed of different people came down, integrated really well into the town. They were welcomed. They were, despite what the naysayers said, there were no incidents. There were no problems. Uh, one of the little boys was on my son's soccer team. You know, so everything was was going reasonably well. And people, even those who were opposed at the, initially, uh, I think had come around to the fact that this was working reasonably well. People in a very difficult position had been welcomed by the community, and it was wonderful. Uh, but things changed and, and you know and there were uh because i think the government is running out of real estate literally to to house people who are fleeing desperate situations uh and very recently there were uh reports of up to 200 or even more single males who were came into the grand hotel and uh the a lot of the families then left and went to places like mayo um because to to make room for the new group and the the surroundings uh were very difficult we're talking about bunk beds very cramped quarters uh and video went viral uh, of a fight, a, a seemingly a pretty good-sized uh, fight out on the streets of, of Wicklow Town. Um, this has raised the hackles of a lot of people uh, in Wicklow, uh, and it comes down to, I suppose, the, the, this issue of consultation and the idea that the local community uh, wasn't consulted, uh, you know, initially. Now, and I, I get that, and, you know, I get I get where people are coming from, and I think that's a re- there are reasonable questions to be asked. Where I do get a little bit worried, again, uh, is where certain political or other opportunities see this as an opportunity to, uh, to I suppose, grow um, support for what is ultimately mm. uh, some of their agenda, which is rooted in hate and discrimination, etc. Um, but, you know, at the same time, John, you know, and this is really important, um, these issues need to be discussed. They need to be discussed fully and frankly. Uh, public representatives need to discuss these issues. If we push them aside, if we bury them, if we say uh, anyone who raises a question about what's happening here, oh, they're racist, they're, they're bigoted, etc. Um, then it, it's only handing a victory to people who actually hold those views. Because at the end of the day, uh, I think both both in East Wall and in Wicklow Town, some legitimate questions are being asked. And I think that people uh, do deserve uh, answers to those questions. Yeah, it, one gets the sense, and I don't know if this is true or not, that, that it seems as if 
there's firefighting constantly going on. Maybe it's, while it, it would be, of course, exacerbated by the amount of people coming in from Ukraine, but there physically aren't places to put people at the moment. Yeah, th- this is this is the real difficulty, you know, is that we're trying to do the very best uh, for these people coming in. And again, uh, you know, I'd be very strong in this. I look, you know, you know, my, my family left Ireland a long time ago because in search of opportunity in this, uh, you know, Ireland has always, you know, uh, been a country of, of net emigration. Now we have people who want to come here. And I think our historic... Uh, this this country's historic role, uh, I think, you know, needs to be recognized and we should be welcoming people. And I think that the vast majority, Sean, are of that mindset. But we do need to we're, we're experiencing some growing pains right now, very definitely uh, in two places in the country. And if those aren't addressed, I mean, I heard, for instance, one person in East Wall. Uh, and again, I don't think he was bigoted or, you know, a, you know, anti-immigrant or hostile to say this, but he just raised the question of we have this place that's being converted very, very quickly to house lots of people. Yet we have a terrible housing crisis, and in particular in that area of mm-hmm. Dublin, um, where our own children, where our own families uh, can't find places to house, yet we can house people from the outside very quickly. Now, I think that there is an answer to that question, but if that question is dismissed and not engaged with and not answered openly and honestly, then that only leads to problems. What is the answer to that question? Well, the question, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 a very, it's a very difficult one, but I think we, you know, we need to say, first of all, that you know, the vast majority of these people are fleeing very, very hard situations uh, and that Ireland has a, a moral obligation uh, to them. Yes, we have a serious housing crisis. Yes, there are people who are in very difficult situations here, but I don't really think it's a case of both and I, or, or either or. I think it's more a case uh, of how we can, uh, I suppose, alleviate the situation uh, for all the people who are involved here. Yeah. Plus also the, for, for uh, asylum seekers, a lot of the direct provision isn't exactly fancy four-star accommodation and, and these groups of young men, are it's, they're kind of hostile arrangements anyway. So it's not, there is a housing crisis here, obviously, but that's not what people would be looking for. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I think a lot of people who've pointed the finger, I, I actually don't think a lot of people, I think, I think most people recognize that direct provision is not a satisfactory solution for anybody, uh, least of all for the people who are housed there. Um, and when, we, when I saw the tension and bubble over into the street uh, in Wicklow Town. Again, it's a five-minute walk from from my house. When I saw the tension bubble over in the street, that wasn't in, that wasn't complete until you saw the footage from inside and literally bunk bed upon bunk bed upon bunk bed. And it doesn't take a genius to figure out that tensions are going to boil over very quickly when you have people who are already in a very difficult position, who are stressed out, all meals in a very tight environment like mm-hmm. that. It's only going to lead to one thing, I'm afraid. Yeah. Uh, are you a soccer fan, uh, Larry? Are you, are you glued to the World Cup? I'm, I'm afraid I'm not. I, even though I, I, I do coach my son's team, this is a shocking admission. Uh, I know very. <laughs> How I know, can you get away with I that? Know, then? I know very. I know very little about soccer, and my only advice to the kids usually is to, to play hard and run hard and do the best they can. Uh, right. Okay. Fair <laughs> enough. So, uh, so you won't be watching any, any of the World Cup. But... No, I, I won't. But I mean, I, I think that you know it, it is. It's an extraordinary event. I don't say extraordinary in a positive light. The, the mere fact that this thing is being held in Qatar and all of what's going on uh, around it is just, I, I don't have the words to put it into. It's really kind of an abomination, to be honest with you. I mean, the fact that they were effectively able to buy the damn thing uh, and have it there, knowing all that we know uh, about the regime there, uh, I think really is appalling. And, you know, look, there are arguments about, you know, leaving sports separate from politics and all of that. Uh, and I get that. Uh, but I think at some stage you have to draw a line. And I think today, 
way just very recently we were seen with the, the Iran players and the Iran fans and the way that they've uh, reacted given the atrocities that are happening uh, at home. You know, it really is extraordinary and I think it stands as uh, a real example of, of some moral courage that's being there. Whereas on the other hand, uh, we had, you know, an armband that was going to be worn yeah. by seven countries, uh, you know, you know, in protest at the way LGBT people are treated uh, in Qatar and in recognition of their rights. And the mere threat of a yellow card uh, meant that they were all they all abandoned that. Uh, so I think we have on the one hand from the Iranians, we have some real moral courage. Uh, on the other hand, I think we have moral cowardice. Yeah. Is it moral cowardice? Because the, the, the people who are saying these people can't wear the armbands is, is FIFA. And uh, 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 yeah, I know, as somebody who doesn't who knows next to nothing about football, but they're just abominably corrupt. Well, they're, they're, there's nothing good about them as an organisation. And if you're a football fan... It must be awful. You know, it's, it's, it's appalling. I mean, as I said at the outset, the very fact that this event is being held in Qatar boggles the mind mm. at every level imaginable. We've talked about the high uh, human rights and everything else, which are the most important concerns. But, I mean, at every level, I mean, you know, let's boil it down to practicality. You can't even get a beer at the damn thing. I mean, the whole thing is just, <laughs> it's really just, at every, as I say, at every level. And that's, not, the, of course, the, the moral issues are, are number one. But at every single level, uh, it's wholly impractical. Practical, it, you know, it, it, it's too hot over there. The way the accommodation situation is a disaster. I mean, I don't know wh- who in their right mind would want to go to the damn thing. I, I certainly wouldn't. Yeah, though. I mean, I read this. I forget now whether it was an off-the-record quote, but that uh, it, it, it was described to somebody in FIFA saying that they actually prefer. Uh, when they're setting up these international competitions to deal with despotic regimes, because you get stuff done. Yeah, you, you, you get stuff done, I guess, but yeah. I, but thousands of people arguably have died in the process. We don't know uh, exactly what has happened, but at least it's been reported by some very credible organizations that uh, there was widespread abuse of migrant labor, that people died in the process of building these stadiums. Uh, so again, you mentioned FIFA. I mean, how does FIFA emerge from this with any kind of uh, reputation? It's it's an appalling organization that clearly went for the almighty buck, and that was it. Yeah, they. I know they'll make billions from it. They'll make they'll make billions from it unashamedly. They'll make billions for it. Well, you know, saying that uh, somehow it's pulling people together. Unless you're a woman or gay or you know, any, or, or uh, unless you're a white guy with lots of money, uh, it's, it's good for them. Sorry, I'm making a speech no, here than no, you but are. But no, it's but it's, just, it's, I just find it baffling. And, it, and it's clear that whatever they thought, you know, perhaps there was some sense that if we engage with Qatar, if we bring this kind of event, then perhaps they'll respond favorably. Then perhaps we can move hearts and minds. Uh, very clearly, uh, that has not been the case. It has backfired spectacularly on that front. Yeah, You know, in general, though, uh, you often hear politicians say that. This is why we're trading with Saudi Arabia. This is why we're trading with China. And um, it never seems to work. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Because uh, I think a lot of these regimes, especially the ones who are fueled uh, by deep, deep, hardline religious beliefs, they're not in this for decades or even for centuries. They're in this for millennia. Uh, and they're not going to budge an inch. Yeah. Now, the the, the, the Fine Gael Ardesh was at the weekend. It, it sounded almost like a, or at least uh, Leo Varadkar's speech sounded like a um, vote for us, the coalition, rather than vote for us, Fine Gael. Yeah, very inter- very interesting. I mean, he, he spoke very warmly uh, about his colleague Michal Martin. I mean, really extolling his virtues as you know t- as during his time as Tishik. And of course, we know uh, that Leo Varadkar will soon uh, assume that role. Uh, but yeah, it certainly was. I, I, I think you know what's at the heart of all this, of course, is the uh, the fear of many in the political center and you know some some critics 
critics would say, uh, in the establishment of the rise and rise of Sinn Féin, and that um, that perhaps a, a lot of what Varadka's rhetoric, and I know there have been people within Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael very critical of Varadka uh, for saying such things, but uh, a part of it, I think, is this kind of idea, let's save the Republic. We can't at all costs, we cannot allow uh, Sinn Féin into government. And of course, um, that suits uh, Fianna Gael in particular, I suppose, uh, politically speaking, you know, because they set themselves up as the, the arch opponent to um, to Sinn Féin. But uh, some of the critics of Radka, and they, there's many of them within Fianna Fáil and within Fianna Gael who said that, you know, he totally misapprehends what motivates Fianna Fáil people and Fianna Gael people. They'll never do business. They'll never come together. Mm-hmm. Um, my tendency, and this is perhaps because I have the benefit or maybe the disadvantage of being an outsider, uh, I do think that the people who think like that, um, they're yesterday. They're, they're, th- things are changing. Uh, and I do think that uh, in the political center, and I think this is one thing Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael in particular, perhaps Fianna Fáil not to the same extent, but there is a strong aversion to um, the, the prospect of a Sinn Féin-led government, uh, and that perhaps this is something um, that Varadkar is speaking to. I think it's very clearly what he's speaking to. But at the fl- on, the, on the flip side, uh, you have Michal Martin, who's uh, signaled a new willingness, perhaps, uh, to do mm. business with, uh, with Sinn Féin. So, look, there's all sorts of things. And the other thing I think striking about um, the Adesh was, you know, the very clear focus on housing. And I think that uh, whether explicitly or impliedly, uh, I think it recognizes the fact that um, both both centrist parties, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, have fallen short on the housing question. They know that uh, most Irish people at this stage want massive state intervention uh, to, as part of the means of solving this crisis. So um, there's a lot of factors at play here. But uh, Sinn Féin is definitely the bogeyman. Yeah, well, and uh, uh, housing, no doubt, would be the central issue of, uh, of the next election, I would think, unless something unforeseen happens. A- absolutely. And I mean, look, uh, you know, a lot of what Varadkar was saying, and not just, uh, but I heard him on with Gavin Riley and w- in other interviews, was to make the case that housing for all actually is growing, not at the rate some people would like, but that it is uh, accomplishing things that housing starts and people are getting onto the property ladder uh, and all that sort of thing. But you know, again, uh, when you look at it, I suppose at gut level, when you talk to young people and see how frustrated and angry they are, uh, there's no question that uh, a lot of that is going to turn to Sinn Féin. The question in the context of an election becomes uh, how not just those young people, but older people. And here's where the, the polls will be very interesting to watch. The polls have indicated Sinn Féin rising with, you know, uh, uh, you know up middle class voters, older mm-hmm. voters, etc., across the spectrum. And I think that in part is because they see what's happening to their children and grandchildren. And yeah. they're, they're so so frustrated with where things are that they are considering doing what had always been unthinkable, which would be maybe not a first preference, but to give Sinn Féin a tick uh, at some stage on, on the ballot paper. And that's, uh, again, very, very interesting to, to, to watch. Yeah. And speaking of anger and frustration, of course, the, the, the uh, controversy about the Spiritans and indeed God knows how many other schools has been rumbling all weekend. And, you know, the, the, there's a lot of we have to listen to the victims but then again, in previous occasions, they haven't quite listened to the victims as closely as they could have. Yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, yet again. I mean, what 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 do you, what do you say? I mean, it, it's it, you know, it's an appalling vista. I was reading uh, some of the first-hand accounts uh, in, in the Irish Times of. Uh, 
students of not just Black Rock, but other other places, uh, and they talked about their own experiences. And it should be said, not all of them were abused themselves personally, but they all kind of knew. They knew mm. things were going on. They knew that certain despicable individuals were doing things. They knew all of this stuff was happening. Yet there seems, I don't know if you could call it a code of silence, but certainly uh, a code in which it didn't get, you know, go beyond the room. There was almost kind of look after our own institution uh, and all that sort of thing that, that was a, a part of it it's deeply deeply troubling and you know again i'll i'll, I'll speak personally as, a, as somebody who still is a practicing catholic despite everything but you know even as my own parish priest said uh you know reflecting on all of this the set really sad part is that those who are looking for a reason to to go away they don't have long and hard to look uh, for reasons to go away from the church when you consider yet again this past week and all the revelations that have come to light. Uh, it, it's appalling. It's sickening. Uh, I don't know what to say. And you, you think about these individuals, and now that we're already talking about, is it going to be an inquiry? Is it going to be you know, restorative justice? What's going to be there? At the end of the day, it's incalculable the damage that was done to so many young people by priests, by people who they were taught to revere, by people who their parents made them revere, uh, and everything it says about um, that phase uh, in Irish history and that chapter in Irish life is deeply, deeply damning. And for me, again, as somebody who still speaks from within, uh, sometimes I scratch my head and say, uh, I really don't know. I just don't know. Yeah, but it seems like this isn't... An issue about the past. This are uh, this is is far more recent than yeah. than than previous re- uh, yeah. revelations. So that and, and that's the danger, and that's that continuing pattern yeah. of people being moved, of cover ups yeah. taking place. Yeah, it's it, one of the students who I read. It was a member of the class of two thousand eight, and just even reading his reflections on the things that he was seeing. And this is a decade ago, uh, you know. And again, that culture of cover it up, keep things moving, keep things moving. Uh, Sean, I mean, there's, there's no defending it. There's no defense for it. Uh, and I struggle, again, I struggle very, very deeply uh, to provide an account uh, of my own church uh, for all that it has done, both, I suppose, active, both misfeasance uh, and tremendous malfeasance. Yeah. Uh, but it will be interesting to see what the government decides, what kind of uh, uh, statute. It, but it seems actually, and a lot of people, I've noticed a lot of people at the weekend saying that we need actually some sort of permanent body that investigates on an ongoing uh, on ongoing basis because there'll be something else after this. It, it may well be, and I, I think one of the key concerns on this, and it, you know, again, I'm, I'm a lawyer. I don't want to talk down the the, the legal profession, but uh, one, I, I think that the real goals here should be uh, achieving justice swiftly for the people who were, uh, you know, who were who are survivors uh, of all that's happened, uh, and not, I mean, I suppose, dragging this into a very protracted uh, sort of affair. Whatever the most streamlined, effective means uh, for getting these people what they deserve, whether that's financial con- compensation, apologies, whatever it might be, that needs to be the real focus here. Yeah, without being uh, adversarial, uh, really, that's yeah. going to really hold these things up. Right, well, I can't let you go before asking about uh, the midterms and um, that didn't go, there wasn't the, the, the red wave that was anticipated, but at the same time, it's still, everything's still on a knife edge for the next election. Yeah, I, I mean, I think in some ways, and again, I'm one of those who got it wrong. I thought the Republicans would have a much stronger day. Uh, to their credit, uh, Democrats, I, I think, did I, did have a reasonable day. And I think uh, somebody who deserves credit and someone I've been critical of is Joe Biden. Uh, you know, whether you think uh, he's too old to be president of the United States, what other criticisms you have him, uh, legislatively, he got a tremendous amount done. And now he's presided, whether it's down to him or not, he's presided over a very good, under the circumstances, showing for the Democratic Party. Uh, that having been said, we're 
we're looking at two years of stalemate and investigations, etc., because the Republicans control the House. Uh, nothing is going to happen uh, on Capitol Hill of consequence legislatively, mm. barring a miracle. So what we're going to have is, as I say, uh, Republicans will try to launch investigations. We all sorts of things. But the real attention is going to focus in on uh, the race for the White House in 2024. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, the specter of Donald Trump uh, looms large over all of this. And uh, at the same time, people will be waiting eagerly to hear what Joe Biden decides. Uh, and he's going to decide, he says, uh, early next year as to whether he'll seek another term. Uh, how do you think the Republican Party are going to react to Trump? There are some signs of their people speaking up saying, you know, blaming him for the for the fact the red wave didn't turn up, Fox uh, um, or, or Murdoch uh, media outlets aren't going to support him. Yeah. Uh, is there a chance they won't? He won't get the nomination, and if he doesn't, what's he going to do? If you if you made me bet on it, uh, I would bet on Ron DeSantis right now. Uh, I think Donald Trump is in trouble. I mean, I think that uh, thinking Republicans know. Uh, that the reason that they lost, one of the main reasons they lost was because of Donald Trump. He's become uh, an electoral liability. Sean, he had a great win in 2016. It's been, a, it's been pretty much bad ever since 2018, 2020, 2022. Uh, he hasn't, he, his philosophy still is politically advantageous, but him, the person, uh, has become a drag uh, on the Republican Party. And even in the final days when he was talking about making a big announcement, even that, I suspect, uh, put, pushed some voters uh, into the Democratic column. Now, he has an, a following that's so rabid that any politician would kill for it, uh, that will be with him. The issue here is how many people are going to seek the nomination. If we have a reasonably crowded field, Trump's chances get an awful lot better. If it does boil down rather quickly to a DeSantis-Trump mano a mano, uh, I think Ron DeSantis will win that clearly. But how many people get in and how long they can stay in that will be very interesting to watch. Why does the crowd fail? Uh, why is that advantageous for Trump? Because Trump has, I would suspect, it's somewhere, it's, it's diminished, but it's somewhere around 30% of grassroots Republican uh, Republicans will be with Trump no matter what. Mm. And if that means that you have Trump, you have DeSantis, you have Glenn Youngkin, you have Nikki Haley, you have... Uh, Mike Pence, you have several others. This is how he did it last time. There were 17 candidates in that race. The reason Trump won the Republican nomination in 2016 was he got up there and said something different, attracted that rabid following. He had his own lane the whole way. If there are several candidates in the field, Trump has a chance. If it boils down quickly to one-on-one, -on -one, uh, I think DeSantis will beat him, and I think he'll beat him pretty soundly. Yeah, even though DeSantis, I mean, in, ide in ideological sense, there's not that much difference between them. It's just that DeSantis is the same version of Trump. Well, you could actually make the case, and this is, uh, I sometimes get a kick out of people on the left actually, you know, speaking favorably about Ron DeSantis, because <laughs> DeSantis, in a way, if you're if you're of a, a left-wing persuasion, DeSantis might actually be more dangerous, because DeSantis actually believes this stuff. He yeah, actually, yeah. He's, a he's a committed conviction conservative, you know, and the other thing I think is going to work for DeSantis, even though he doesn't have much charisma, which has been well heralded, DeSantis is 44 years old. If you look at the leadership of both Republican and Democratic parties, they're octogenarians. I mean, they are too old, to be quite frank. I don't want to sound ageist, but they are. That mm. is the bottom mm. line. Uh, so I think DeSantis uh, has a lot of cards to play. But if don't ever count Trump out, especially uh, if a lot of Republicans get in and they're tempted to stay in for the long haul. Larry, thanks a million. As ever, uh, Larry Donnelly there. Moncrief. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. Weekdays at 2 p.m.
on News Talk.